to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. I remember back when I was a sophomore at Stockton State College down there in Pomona, New Jersey. It was at 83-84. That was the year I was down there for that year. And my friend Randy Schindewolf had a, had a turntable in our dorm, and he always cranked music when we were either going out to drink or we were studying. And one of his albums, Heavy in Rotation, was the debut album, self-titled Bad Company. And to this day, when I hear Can't Get Enough, I swear to God, it takes me back to a young guy with long hair in college having fun. And I'm honored today to have the man who drummed on the album and the man who is from Bad Company. It's Simon Kirk. How you doing, Simon? Hey, Steve. How are you? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Can't Get Enough. That was a long time ago. Isn't that crazy when you when you think about it? And you hear it on the radio now, and it still it still holds up. But for you, it must be thinking, you know, because you had solo albums and things like that. I mean, it must really take you back to a certain time because you know everyone knows that song. I mean, what's it like for you when people when you hear it in a supermarket or people come up to you and go, "Oh, we love Can't Get Enough." What's it like for I you? Love it. I love it. I'm not so much the supermarket. It hasn't quite graduated to elevators. Or supermarket, yeah. Although I hear all right now and feel like making love a lot in my gym. Uh, but look, when people come up to me and say, you know, how much they love the music back then, it means a lot. I mean, it's one of the reasons we play. Uh, you know, back then, you know, I was 25 and it, it was just to get girls. You know, it was just to <laughs> have fun, be in a band, travel the world. Everything I wanted to do, everything I aspired to, came true with Bad Company and um, that first album <clears throat> and Can't Get Enough, by the way, was the very first track that we recorded. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it, it means a lot to me when when people say uh, things like that. It's, it's I, I'm honoured, quite honestly. I want to talk about your uh, career with Bad Company, but I want to talk about your well, your latest, your last solo album was in 2017, All Because of You. And yeah. you play ukulele, you actually do a Bad Company song on there. What yeah. made you grab, and you've done three solo albums, what made you gravitate and decide to do the solo albums? Because it's from drummer to frontman with guitar. I mean, was there something that you said, I'm just tired of playing drums, or how'd that happen? Well, I, years ago, I saw Richie Havens in a club out here on Long Island. And he, he must have been on stage for about two hours. He played four songs and he told stories. And I thought, you know what, I've got all these songs that are sort of backlogged in my brain and on various tapes and whatever, and I just wanted to sort of exercise these songs and get them out, not necessarily, I mean, people want to buy them, fine, but in order for me to move on as a songwriter, I have to get, you know, get rid of the songs that I already have inside me. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I wrote those three, three albums, um not necessarily to have any great commercial success success because they didn't you know um i'm proud of them and i might actually redo the first one because the first one was called seven rays of hope and i did that in my little basement in in manhattan it was just me playing all the instruments and someone said later on you know those are really good songs but i really didn't do them justice but that's a story for another time uh, but that's mainly the reason I did them, Steve, was to uh, just get them out there. And, and, and I think they stand up pretty well. Now, you said you played all the instruments. 
When did you, as a kid, did you just concentrate on drums and then graduate the instruments as you got older? Or what was your musical, you know, the progression to being able to play because all those instruments, because I always say, I have friends who are drummers, and I always say drummers are the smartest guys, because they got to use the left side of their brain and the right side of their brain. I, you know, most people, if you try to bang on a on a desktop and move your feet, it just doesn't work. I mean... Well, I always said, if you can ride a bicycle, you can play drums. <laughs> um, not necessarily at the same time, but I, what happened was, I was introduced to music when I was in uh, school. Uh, I guess I was about... Uh, 12 and I was in the school choir I had a pretty nice you know soprano voice and then um, we played recorder which is like um, like a flute uh, and that was you know it was okay it wasn't great but I, I when I heard the the Beatles for the first time in 63 I was 12 going on 13 and that really sparked something in me but what, the lightning bolt that got me drumming was when we got our first TV. It was a black and white set. There was no color back in those days. And there was a program called All That Jazz, and it featured big band, swing swing bands. And I was absolutely transfixed by the drummer. I, I just loved the, what, what the drummer was doing and um, the whole rhythm, you know, that fast... It was such a, a, a lively, you know, full of life. And and I started, my mum had a pair of knitting needles on the sofa, and I started banging away on the electric fire. And, um, yeah, I think that was really the, the first time I, I got into drums, as it were. But then I had to, there, there were no music stores. Where I was brought up in England was very, very remote. So I had to cut sticks from a hedge. I had to bang on, on little books on my bed and listen to... Um, my little transistor radio playing this thing called Radio Luxembourg, which was a, a station out in uh, uh, Luxembourg in Europe that played all black music and progressive music. Um, that's how I learned drumming, really. Uh, but to take it one step further, when I was in school, about 14, I'd had a little band, and my bus driver, the school bus driver, he collared me as I was getting off the bus. And he said, here, I hear you play drums. I said, well, yeah, I do. And I'm very good, you know, trying to promote myself. And he said, well, look, I have a... It wasn't called a disco back in those days. But he said, I, I have a stack of 45s and I have two turntables and I go around, you know, the sort of tri-state area and I play uh, records for people to dance to. Would you like to set your drum? I thought, Wow. And you know what? I did that for over two years. And that's where I got my sense of time, playing along to all different types of, uh, of music, you know, Beatles, Rolling Stones, and, uh, and then uh, Tamala Motown, Otis Redding, and then some old country stuff. Um, and then I got into guitar, uh, thanks to a, a judge in court. Well, what happened there? Wait, tell me, tell me this. Well, my... My neighbours were complaining about me practicing drums. The the, the instrument worse than practicing uh, drums is violin, and uh, I was uh, I was spared that. But my neighbours complained, and so we had to go to family court. And the judge ruled. He said, "Look, I see you're young. I didn't go. My father went. I was too young." And he said, "Tell your son he can practice for half an hour a night, 
only after he's done his homework and banged the gavel and that was it so after half an hour my dad would come up to the bedroom and say you can't you can't practice anymore so my brother who was in the army in germany had come home on leave and brought a little uh, electric guitar no amp just an electric guitar which he left in my bedroom and i started playing on that just you know i really wanted to play music and I uh, was just playing along to old blues records and old Beatles songs. And that's what, I've been playing guitar almost as long as I've been playing drums. Now, you know, you said you grew up in a remote area and you're playing the drums. So how do you start your journey to this amazing career you've had? I mean, you know, you go from 14, you're playing drums. The judge tells you to be quiet. You know, what, what are your steps that got you to become a professional musician? Well, during that time that I was playing along with the disco, this guy came up, he was a bit older than me, and he said, look, I've got a band called The Maniacs. I thought, what a great name, The Maniacs. And I, he says, I think you'd be really good. And I'd never played with, in a band before, you know, I'd only just played along the record. So with my parents' permission, I, I got you know, permission to go and jam with them, and they were great. And so I joined the band, we started going all over the area around my my hometown playing these little clubs and village halls and then then i really got the bug i thought this is, i was getting pretty good at this and and so it came crunch time with my parents when i was 16 i wanted to leave school and i hadn't got my high school diploma they're called ordinary level and advanced level and with ordinary levels o levels you can you know you not bad but if you get advanced levels you can go to a good college. So they said, no, you're not going to leave school with an O-level. We want you to get an A-level certificate, which means staying another two years. And I was, ugh, I was really, I was kind of pissed off, but they were right, you know, they were right. And, and I'm glad I stayed because I got pretty good grades. And then they said another part of the deal, you can leave school at 18, take a two-year gap year, whatever you want to call it, and try your luck down in London, uh, and if nothing happens after two years, then you go to college. And I thought that was a pretty good compromise, so I did. And I, I, I went down to London, I stayed with some distant relatives and answered auditions and did menial labor jobs and all sorts of things, and nothing was happening. And my time was running out, and then the last month of the 24 months that they'd given me, I saw an ad for a band called the Black Cat Bones, and I thought, what a great name. Uh, they were a blues band, and they were way across London. It was like, I don't know, going from Philly to uh, almost to, to New York to see this band. You know, it was a long way. So I tossed a coin, and it came down heads, and I went to see this band, and I met Paul Kossoff, who was the guitarist, and um, I said, I didn't think his drummer was very good. And he said, well, it's funny you should say that. He's getting the sack tonight. He's leaving. And we're having auditions tomorrow if you want to come along. So I came along the next day and I got the job. And um, I hooked up with Paul Kossoff. And then we went on and we formed free with Paul Rogers and Andy Fraser. Was it hard for you to acclimate to a band when you first started? Because you, as you said, you were used to the DJ. Mm -hmm. But now you had to work with everything and different you know, personalities. I mean, what was it like? Because you're a young guy. Was it was it something you picked yeah. up very quickly? Well, I, was, I was a young guy, and also I was a townie. You know, all these these boys were country boys, and they were big. They were like four or five years older than me. 
So I kind of had to assert myself. And I think having that training, playing along with all those different styles of, of, of songs over those two years, really helped me adjust. And, and, and they'd say, right, we're going to do this, uh, this song. And I come straight in. And they were like, fucking hell. All right. You know, he's, so I, 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 in life, I think you make your own luck sometimes. And, and that really helped me. And, and even though I talked with a funny accent, I wasn't a country boy. They kind of took me under their wing. I was like a little brother. Um, and then I started singing uh, as well, a backup harmonies. And, and I really think that that band was, was pretty damn good, actually. Uh, uh, and, and it was a springboard to go on to, to bigger and better things. It really helped me. Now, with Free, how long till you guys got a record deal? What was your, you know, because you guys had a hit, but what was your progression to getting recognition? Oh, wow. Well, it it was all very compressed. You know, we were formed in 1968. I was 19. And we hadn't been around very long, but we were lucky. We had We knew a couple of people. Uh, and Paul Kossoff's father was a guy called David Kossoff. He was an actor, a very well-known actor in London, in England, really. And Andy Fraser, the bass player, knew a guy called Alexis Corner, who was the sort of godfather of the blues, the blues scene in London uh, at that time. And so we kind of, a, a couple of the, the, the cogs were greased, as it were. We, we got a little in. Uh, but we were very, very good. We had to sort of live up to the, the hype, if you will. Um, so really, we landed this residency at the Marquee, which is a famous uh, club in, in London, every Monday night. It wasn't a great spot, but it was the Marquee. And while we were there, Island Records had heard about us, and they sent down one of their scouts to check us out. And we got a phone call that Chris Blackwell who was the head of Island Records, would like to see us in, in his office, you know, next week, if you'd like to come along. And um, we were like, wow, fucking great. Island Records, they had Traffic, they had Joe Cocker. You know, they were a really good label. So we went along. We were only kids, you know. We were only like 19, 17, and, and uh, 18. And Chris Blackwell said, you know, I hear that you're a really good band. Uh, but we don't like the name. Um, we don't like free. We think it's too nebulous. People are going to get confused. Uh, we, we don't like the name, so we want to call you the Heavy Metal Kids. And we went, what? You're fucking kidding me. We were like, no. I mean, quaking inside because this was Island Records. And we said, no. And he said, well, then, then we don't have a deal. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> we went out the office thinking, what have we done? Well, we stuck to our guns and Andy, Andy Fraser, who was the business guy of the band, he got a call later that night from Chris Blackwell, who said, you know what, we're going to give you a six-month trial. You can keep the name and we'll, after six months, we'll renegotiate. And um, we started working like you wouldn't believe, gig after gig after gig all over England all over the United Kingdom, Europe, building up this fan base. Um, and we got a one album deal. <laughs> one album. And if this doesn't sell, you know, the option is on Ireland to say yes or no. 
Well, it didn't sell, but we got enough good reviews for them to say, you know, we'll, we'll extend your uh, we'll extend your record contract. And, and we, you know, after two years, we hit with All Right Now. And boy, did we hit. Do you remember hearing that for the first time on the radio? Oh, um, no. Quite honestly, no. Um, we were probably in a van driving to a gig somewhere. Yeah. But it really turned our lives around, for better and for worse, quite honestly. Well, what? why do you say for worse? Well, because we were suddenly thrust into the limelight, which is something we'd always wanted. But instead of doing a town every other day, we were doing a country. Our workload just tripled. And, and then we had to do the follow-up, uh, you know, because All Right Now was a massive hit. And Island Records were very happy, but, you know, we contracted to do another album and singles sold albums, as you remember. If you had a hit single, you were pretty much guaranteed a hit album. So we had to come up with a follow-up to um, All Right Now and Fire and Water, the album that it came from. And uh, um, the follow-ups did not do very well at all. And that's really, it's what happened when you know, suddenly uh, Paul Rogers and Andy Fraser said, we've had enough of this, you know, we, we're going to break the band up. And that's what happened. So what is that like? You know, you, you, as you said, you know, you're thrust into the limelight, you become popular, and now the brand, the band's broken up. Did you, were you scrambling? Did you and Paul already have a Cahoochal start bad company? I mean, what is it like because you are oh. successful and you're young? What was, what did you go through? Well, we, we did have time on our side, and we also... Uh, you know, we were young, and that was the problem. I think we needed better management to say, you know, hey, guys, you've done a lot of work, you know, and I take some time off. And that was what it was, the workload. It was really crippling, even for, for youngsters like us. And the management, I think, were at fault in that they, they didn't structure our, um, you know, our schedule a little better. So Paul Rogers said, I've had enough, I'm on out. Andy Fraser joined him, and, and the band broke up, which left me and Paul Kossoff, like, spinning on our axis, you know, like, whoa, what happened? Suddenly we haven't got a band anymore. Um, we did a solo album, uh, me and Paul, uh, Paul Kossoff. It was called Kossoff, Kirk, Tetsu, and Rabbit. Tetsu was a Japanese bass player, and Rabbit was the keyboard player who went on to be with The Who, a very, very good player. Um... Uh, and then, you know, we, we reformed, free reformed. It, it wasn't really quite the same. Paul Kossoff developed a drug problem. And we kind of got back together for him, really, which wasn't... It was honourable, but it wasn't the best thing to do. And in 1973, after a couple of breakups and get back together, we, we broke up completely. And um, I went off to Brazil. I had a girlfriend down there, and uh, I lived there for a while. And then when I came back, I called Paul Rogers and said, hey, man, what are you up to? And he said, well, I've met this guy called Mick Rouse from Mott the Hoople. He's leaving Mott the Hoople. And we want to form a band. And would you like to, you know, play drums? I said, yes, please. <laughs> and that was the beginnings of Bad Company. So how did you guys end up on Swan Song? I believe you were the first band sung by Swan Song, which that must be, that must be something, you know, because they were such a big label. Well, it was all thanks to our New Zealand roadie. Um, he had another, a, a friend of his, they came from New Zealand, 
and his friend was working for Led Zeppelin. And they were, you know, they were good pals. And Graham, our guy, got hold of Clive, Led Zeppelin's guy, and said, you know, Paul, we sat round a table one night and said, you know, we want to be a big band. Who's the biggest band in the world right now, Led Zeppelin? Do we know anyone? Ah, Clive, he works for Led Zeppelin. So we got hold of uh, Peter Grant's number, his phone number, and Paul Rogers called uh, Peter Grant up and said, you know, I've got a band together and we'd like you to see it. You know, and Paul, and Peter Grant said, yeah, I know. He said, what? Yeah, because it was all supposed to be secret. Yeah, I know I've heard about it. I've heard about this band. It's called Bad Company or something. Good name. But, oh, great. Anyway, Peter Grant came to see us and he loved us and uh, we didn't know about Swan Song but he said look my, my boys are putting together an album, um, a, a record label and we'd like you to be on it wow so yeah a big yes all round and uh, that was the launch it was a perfect storm Steve you know it was uh, we had this band we were on Led Zeppelin's label we had some great songs and it was the launch of their record label so so it received worldwide publicity you know it couldn't fail and um you know the first album is is still one of my favorites and it's still selling like hot cakes what makes later. what makes it one of your favorites when you say that because i always wonder because you guys have such a large body of work i mean and it's been your your musical styles change but why is it one of your favorites is it well, the there, nostalgia there, there was no no there, there was a there was a freshness to it there was a freedom to it there was an enthusiasm, you know, to doing it. We, we recorded it in four days, by the way, and mixed it in three. So the whole thing was done in a week. Uh, there was just a freshness about the whole thing. And um, the fact that uh, it launched our career certainly helped. Um, I think maybe there were, there were um, more mature songs in the, in the subsequent albums, like Shooting Star, Feel Like Making Love. They were wonderful, wonderful songs. Uh, but without that first album, you wouldn't have had Shooting Star or Feel Like Making Love or, you know, Weep No More. It was just the, the forerunner to, to everything that came afterwards, really. Now, were you ever worried when that first album started getting successful that the same thing would happen that happened with Free? You guys would get overworked and doing that? Well, <laughs> we, were, we were actually well prepared for what came and in fact from 74 through to 79 we had a ball i mean we were very much uh this is what we wanted to do and we were well prepared to do it um but unfortunately i was developing a substance abuse problem as were some other members of the band and um it it took its toll and and there came a time around 1980 when Bonzo died, you know, John Bonham died, and John Lennon was shot. It was the worst year for rock and roll. And once again, Paul said, I've had enough of this, fuck it. And um, he opted to leave the band, and it kind of left us high and dry. Zeppelin broke up. It was just a, a, a lousy time. But for those six years, we, we had a great time, and, and we, we left our mark. What is it like when you're on that upscale and you're starting to do bigger and bigger venues i mean as a drummer you know because you guys i always the drummer i always see the drummer and the bass player like when you watch baseball you're the middle infield you need a second base and shortstop they 
keep the glue together. What is it like when you're in the helm? Because you guys were playing big, big venues. When you're just like looking out and 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 they, you know, people are into your your beat. Oh, it's it's, it's great. It's lovely. I mean, that's what we we always wanted to do. That's what we aspired to. But I learned a lot uh, watching um, more seasoned professionals. I used to really flail and. You know, I used to be exhausted by the third song. And, and you know, that's why monitors were invented. You know, you have to remember that back in the Isle of Wight, the, the, the festivals that we played in the Isle of Wight back in 1969 and 70, there were no monitors. You just used, there were no monitors at Woodstock. You just used, you know, the amps. So I, I remember watching, you know, some, some professionals and they were, they were letting the monitors do the work for them in a way. And, and, and as, as our, the size of the venues increased, I, yeah, sure, I, I play with, with passion, but I don't kill myself anymore. I, 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 know how to, I know how to play to a big audience now. And um, you just try and project the first three or four rows, and the PA system will do the rest. So don't worry. They'll hear you. Now, when you guys were, you know... By a company and the albums after them, did you feel pressure that you needed to come out with more hits? Because you did. All your albums did well. But did you guys feel that internal pressure? Like, okay, we just got done this bad company album. It was great. So now we're doing Straight Shooter. That has to be a hit. I mean, what what's what happens with a dynamic? Do you feel the pressure or you just sit there and say, Well, I, they're, they're, you know, at that time, you know, we were in, like, Paul was. Paul's the same age as me, so we were around 26, 27 when um, Straight Shooter and Run With The Pack came out. And Paul was really writing a lot of good, classy songs. And he always had a wealth uh, of songs because we were happy. We were a happy band. We were playing what we wanted and we were being a success. And there's no greater combination than that in life. Doing what you love and getting paid a lot of money to do it. Wonderful feeling. But sooner or later, there comes a time where you get married or you get a girlfriend. You don't, or they don't want you to go out quite as much. You know, you, 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 there's a little wedge, a feminine wedge, if you wish, you know, that starts coming in. And, and we all got girlfriends and we all, you know, found that we, that our priorities were changing a little bit. Um, and we were never, I was never really cognizant of deadlines. Suddenly we get a call from the office saying, you know, you've got a new album to finish by November of next year. We go, fucking hell, really? Yeah, you've got a contract with six albums. They're going to give you however millions of dollars, but you've got to produce an album. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, okay. And that's what happened after uh, Run With The Pack, when we did Burning Sky. Uh, we had to finish it, and we really didn't have a lot of songs. And it kind of showed, you know, we, we slapped songs together. There were a couple of good ones. Burning Sky was a great song, but the overall album was the first album that the critics went, eh, not their greatest effort, you know. We were like, oh, okay, so, yeah. 
Now you you co-wrote you co-wrote the song Bad Company. Tell me about tell me about that because I, I always love the fact that there's a song called Bad Company on an album Bad Company yeah. called Bad Company. Now that was something. I mean, was that that you sat down with Paul, or what was the process for you to get that on the album? Well, at that time, um, this was before we recorded the first album. Paul had this beautiful piano. He'd always wanted a piano. He had this huge Yamaha piano in his little cottage. In fact, it took up almost two little rooms. And he was noodling around. He had this... We would all been watching Clint Eastwood, Spaghetti Westerns and Tumbleweeds and Lone Riders, you know, after the, you know, Bale Bondsman, that whole sort of macho uh, stuff. And he had this thing, this little riff on the piano in E-flat minor, which is all the black notes. And it's actually quite easy to play. It's, It's a dead easy riff to come up with but he had this thing bam 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 and he said and he had this idea and i happened to be there um and i said wow that's nice and the opening line was company always on the run destiny and i said is the rising sun he said, oh okay <laughs> so we sat there with a joint and a glass of beer and i think we wrote the thing in 20 minutes and um it's just i still love it to this day it's my favorite song or one of them for sure. Um, it's just got a great mood to it, and uh, yeah, put all my kids through college. Well, you know, I talked about can't get enough, and uh, that's you in the beginning with the drum. Is that you calling off the cadence? Yeah. So how well, did... we were we were spread all over the the house. You know, we weren't in the studio; we were in a big house, and uh, I was in the basement. Boz was in the boiler room with his bass. Mick and Paul were upstairs in the main living room with their guitars. So I had to get their attention, like one, two, one, two, three, cobra, and in we go. And when we listened to playback, uh, we all said, yeah, that's great, man, let's leave it on. <laughs> I think it's the most famous counting in, in rock, but there you go. No, no, because I, I, always, I always listen for that when I listen. Uh, now, when you guys broke up in 80, uh, when you guys did the first breakup, you know, you took your separate ways, what was your path? What, what did you want to do then? Because once again... You're, that's been such a big part of your life. Now you have money because, as you said, the song "Bad yeah. Company" put your kids through college, so yeah. you don't have to worry about that. But what do you do? I mean, well, first of all, was that were you still? Did you still have the substance abuse, abuse problem at that time? Yeah, in fact, it got worse because I was really at a, at a, at a loose end. And me and Mick, we sort of we noodled around for a year or two, writing songs together. Me and Mick Ralphs, Boz Burrell went off and, and joined some jazz band. And in after about two or three years, I mean, it's a long time in the desert, uh, Armour Ertigan, who was the head of Atlantic, he called me and said, look, Paul's not coming back. Why didn't you get another singer? You've got a great name. And just, you know, continue as bad company. And, and we did. And we got in Brian Howe, uh, for better or for worse. And it really... It was not a period in my life that I was very happy about, but I, I just didn't want to see Bad Company roll over and play dead. I, I, I wanted to extend it, as did Mick Ralphs. You know, we had this great band, and if Paul didn't want to be in it, well, bollocks, you know, we'll get someone else. It was not the greatest mindset to continue this band, but there was a certain kind of, ah, fuck it, let's just do it. So we got in Brian, and, and the band went off in a different direction from the classic rock sound that it's most known for. And oddly enough, you know, after Brian had died last year, 
there were a lot of tributes to him and a lot of people didn't know of Bad Company pre-Brian Howe. They, they only knew the Brian, Brian Howe version and, you know, Holy Water and, um, you know, the albums that came uh, with, with Brian. We did four or five albums with him and um, he was missed. Unfortunately, we didn't get on as people and, uh, you know, there was a contentious feeling for quite a few years. And in the end, uh, you know, he left or he was fired, whichever. It doesn't matter now. Um, but we kept the name alive. We kept the name in the forefront. The music was not the same as the Paul Rogers era. Um, and it got more and more synthetic, quite honestly. There, was, uh, there were a few good songs, but overall... It was not a happy period for me. Is it? Is it hard? Was it hard to adjust to a new frontman when when Brian took over? Yeah. Because you're so used to Paul. You've been mates. You've been in free. You've been. I mean, what yeah. was it like? The, the, I missed the, him. Yeah, I, I did miss him, and that's a very good question. Brian was a different, uh, a, a different um, animal altogether. You know, he was very much. Uh, he became a heavy metal singer, and that really wasn't what we wanted. Um, and he was not, uh, I don't want to speak ill of someone who's passed away, but we just didn't get on. He became really someone that uh, just didn't work with the band. And, and, you know, he would have said, well, Mick and Paul, uh, Mick and Simon were, were out in their own little world. Yeah, I was drinking a lot. Mick was drinking a lot. We were all drinking a lot. But we still managed to play very well. And we did some good shows. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. It just wasn't the bad company that I'd grown up with, and uh, I was so happy when Paul came back to, uh, in the fold, you know. Now, when did you get sober, and was there a defining moment that made you said, I have to stop oh, yeah. this? Yeah, well, I, got, I stopped drinking in 1982 uh, for a few years, and I went on and off the wagon, as it were. I haven't drunk now for about six years. I stopped doing coke in nineteen in twenty. Hey, well, no, 1996, so that's 26 years. So uh, I've been totally sober now for about six years. But I stopped doing all the heavy shit uh, over 25 years ago. And um, best thing I ever did. Was there a reason or was it just burning you up? I mean, because... Oh, yeah, I nearly died. <laughs> what happened there? <laughs> well, I was on a tour bus and I was drinking Jack Daniels and taking Ativan, which is a heavy soporific. And um, I was left in the bunk on the tour bus and my girlfriend at the time all the guys had left and they had gone into the hotel and I was convulsing on on the bunk and she pulled me off the bunk and slapped me and walked me around and pretty much saved my life I'm sure I, my life was saved that night and that's when I thought fuck this you know I'm gonna go into rehab and I did and for, for the most part you know I, I stayed away I stayed away from coke, that's for sure. I, I never took coke ever again. Um, but I, I drank now and again and did pills now and again. But, uh, you know, those days are, are long over now. Thank God. Now, in like 94, you had Robert Hart start singing. Mm. What is, once again, it's a new singer and you have to adjust again. Were you, were you a little hesitant to get him involved because you no. didn't get along with Brian Robert or what was, happened? Robert was great. Um, he, he was he played very much like 
Uh, he sang very much like Paul, Paul Rogers, that same bluesy, soulful voice. He was a lovely guy. He was, he was so nice to work with, and that, that's a huge part of any success. You know, you know, you can have a little bit of touchstone, a bit of, you know, friction now and again, but when it's, when it's toxic, it's no good. You've got to like the guy. And, and I like Robert. I love Mick. I've always loved Mick Rouse. And I love Boz Burrell. Um, you know, Paul Rogers, I like and I respect. You know, and I think this, the feeling is mutual. There's a like and there's a respect there. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say as I love him, like I love Mick and, and I love Boz, who passed away a few years ago. But Robert Hart was, was very likable, very amenable, great singer, good-looking guy, great front guy. So there was not really that much for me to do, just to get on and, you know, play drums <laughs> with a freedom that I hadn't had with Brian Howe. Now, how did Paul get back into the fold? What happened? Well, what happened was that after 25 years of uh, Bad Company, um, Swan Song released uh, a compilation, a double CD, four, four CDs. And um, they asked if we would do a promotional video uh, for it, to launch it. And I think Paul was kind of fed up with the way the band had been going. And he'd been out with, uh, you know, he'd been doing solo stuff. And he called up one day and said, look, I, I want to come down and have a little jam and let's see how we get on. And he came in and it was like fitting, you know, slipping into an old pair of shoes. It was just wonderful. And um, uh, I forget the actual year, but we, we did a tour and it was great. And we've never really looked back. You know. Now, what is it like now? I mean, you know, as I said, since Paul's been, Paul's been back for a while, I mean, is it, do you guys come in, you tour, you, you know, what is your relationship? I mean, when you, when you get together now, do you have a, do you have a definitive plan or do you just play it by ear? Well, no, we, we, we did have a plan until COVID came along. Um, we had a great tour and we finished with, with Leonard Skinner. We did a great nationwide tour with Skinner, finished in Las Vegas of October 2019. And then, then COVID came along. And we really haven't done anything since, much to my chagrin. You know, I really miss playing with the guys. But, you know, Paul is very cautious about his health and he doesn't want to go out. Um, we're just waiting to see. I mean, a lot of other bands have bitten the bullet and they, they're going out and good luck to them. But uh, Paul's a little more cautious, shall we say. I'm waiting, I'm around, I'm, I've got all the vaccines and boosters and whatever. Um, so we'll just have to see, but, but, uh, it's a waiting game right now. Now you recently played some gigs with GE Smith. How, how did that relationship start? I know you played in Sellersville, which isn't too far from Philly. Yeah. But oh, that, I love it. How did, yeah. what, what is that show? Explain what that show is. Well, it, it, it's, I've known GE Smith on and off for years now. You know, I, he lives in the next village to me. I live out in Montauk. He lives in Amagansett, which is just down the road. And I've known him. You know, we've jammed together over the years. Uh, I love playing with him. He's a wonderful player. And our shows comprise of some bad company songs. We do all right now. We do a lot of blues songs, uh, a couple of mine. You know, I do an acoustic song called Maria for my wife. Um, I tell a lot of stories because I've got some great stories of my life on the road. 
um, and we just have a lot of fun. But it's just it's like a hobby in a way, Steve. It's it's not like a career thing. I as much as I love playing with GE, as soon as I get the call from Paul, I'm like Roadrunner. I'm I'm out of there. But I do like playing with him. So, Simon, uh, I'm sure you have some great uh, rock and roll stories, stories from the past. Give me a, a few gems so I can, I can, so the listeners and me can enjoy them. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have uh, quite a few stories. Um, I think uh, my two favorite ones, well, there's three, actually. One involves George Harrison, one involves Ringo, and one involves uh, Bonzo from Zeppelin. Um, and the one with Bonzo was very, um, <laughs> very funny because when, when Bad Company were playing in Los Angeles, Zeppelin were playing, I believe, two nights at the Forum. Then they had a night off when we were playing and then they were doing another night in the Forum after us. So Zeppelin were in town um, while we were there and we were all staying at the Hyatt House, which was quite a legendary hotel and Zeppelin and Bad Company would kind of took over the first uh, or the top five floors and I was we'd had a good gig and I was just just about to go into bed I was having an early night about four in the morning and uh, I was just getting into bed and I heard this knock on the door kind of a boom 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 and, um, you know, I thought, oh, Jesus, who the fuck is that? <laughs> and uh, I said, who is it? And he said, it's Bonzo. I said, well, I'm not in. <laughs> he said, come on, open the door, you bastard. So I thought, you know, there's nothing I can do. I've got to, I've got to open the door. And there was John in a pretty sober state, I have to say, and... We were all a little worried about Bonzo's drinking, but that particular night, he seemed to be all right. And he said, come on, we're going out. And I said, John, it's four in the bloody morning. <laughs> he said, no, and he waved these car keys at me. He had a set of car keys. He said, come on, I want to show you something. So I went down, um, we went down to the underground car park, and there, right at the end, in the, in the darkness, was this uh, funny car, you know, they're called funny cars. They go around like a NASCAR, basically, <laughs> capable of doing, God knows, 200 miles an hour. And he said, come on, let's take it for a spin. I thought, oh, God. <laughs> so anyway, we, we get in it, and it's got this little gear stick, which is only about three inches wide, or tall, rather. So he starts the thing up, and it's enormous power. And we sort of screech out of the... Uh, car park all all the car alarms are going off in the other cars and we hurtle on to uh sunset boulevard now this is four in the morning you'd think there wouldn't be much traffic but it was packed it's still la on a sunday night um so we're doing in first gear we're doing about 60 and the speed limit is 35 on sunset and he's starting to look down. I said, Jesus Christ, John, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm trying to find second gear. So he, you know, gets second gear, and we're doing about 70 this time. And, of course, you know, in the rearview mirror, there's the cop car. We hadn't been on the road a minute. <laughs> and John pulls over, and 
you know, the guy in the loudspeaker says, put your hands where I can see them, la, la, la. And he comes up to the John's side, to the driver's window, and he's wearing these mirrored sunglasses. You know, it's four in the, four in the morning. What the hell is he doing? <laughs> L.A., you know. So he says, wind down the window. John lowers the window, and he says, yeah, he said, first of all, he said, you know, driver, uh, license and registration. And John said, look, I'll be honest, officer, I haven't got any of that. And the guy lowers his, lowers his sunglasses. He says, you're John Bonham. <laughs> I thought, thank God, uh, there is a God. And he was all kind of like a fan, all of us. He said, what is this car? I want to see under the, you know, wow, man, la, la, la. But he said, you know, you were doing 70 miles an hour back there. And John said, look, I'm really sorry, officer. I've only just got it, and I was trying to figure it all out. He said, look, I've got something. And he reaches in the glove box, and the cop goes, you know, hey, you know, careful. He says, all right, it's all right. And he pulls out three tickets for Zeppelin at the Forum tomorrow night, the next night. He says, here, officer, I'll give you these three tickets if you don't give me one of yours. Ah. Uh, <laughs> And the cop was like putty in John's hand. He became this fan. He said, thank you, man. The guys at the station will never believe it. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop the traffic. You're going to go back to wherever you came from. Um, John had told him, you know, we're staying at the Hyatt House. And you're going to go and you're going to go to bed. He's like a father. He said, all right, and John said, all right, officer, I'll, I'll do that. So, yeah, he didn't, stops the traffic. John does this very gentle U-turn, and we trundled back to the high house at a legitimate 35 miles an hour. How, and, how uh, insane was the Hyatt house? I've heard stories like that was just insane, like rock and roll. Well, it was only crazy when Zeppelin were there, because quite honestly, yeah, most bands stayed there. But in terms of debauchery and um, hijinks, no one came close to Zeppelin. I, I, in particular, Bonzo, who was a one-man wrecking crew. I mean, he had a whole room just set up for a drum kit, and he would play drums all, all day and all night. I mean, he was just... But, but it, it was pretty crazy. I mean, Bad Company had their moments there as well, but it was, it was this sort of uh, beacon of... Um, debauchery and, and whatever you want to call it. But I don't know how many other bands perpetrated, you know, their hijinks. I know Mooney from The Who had his moment. He was swung from one balcony to another outside, uh, you know. So The Who and Zeppelin, and to a minor degree, bad company, we all had our moments. Now tell me, tell me your George Harrison story. Well, the George Harrison is much more sedate and uh, but to my mind, it's it's the most wow, you know, jaw dropping story. We were invited. I was staying with Mick Rouse, you know, the guitarist from Bad Company, who was only a couple of miles from George's palatial estate called Friar Park, enormous house. And we were at um, a New Year's Eve party, and everyone was, you know. Yeah, drinking and smoking and having a great time because it was the most beautiful house and George was a, a great host. And, it, you know, around about, 
I guess 11, 11.30 at night. George taps me on the shoulder and said, come on, I want to show you something. And I was like, wow, okay. I mean, I'd kind of gotten to know him. We were quite friendly. But for him to single me out, I was I was really uh, quite honoured. So we leave the, the main ballroom where everyone's bopping. And we walk down this enormous corridor and there's every Beatles album, platinum and whatever you... Every award known to man on the walls. And I thought, well, maybe he wants to show me that. But no, no, we keep on going to um, to the kitchen. There's a huge kitchen. And in the corner, where there was this big... It was all flagstones, you know, old-fashioned fl- uh, floor. And set in the corner was this big brass ring, and it was a handle. And, jo- uh, and George suddenly starts, you know, lifting it up, and this flagstone comes up, you know, to vertical. And I hear this water lapping underneath. And I think, well, fuck me, maybe he thinks I'm a plumber, not a drummer. (laughs) Maybe he's got some rising damp problem, I don't know. But anyway, George gets his flashlight and he disappears down this ladder out of sight. And he says, come on, you know, come on, I'm waiting. So I, I, I look down and there's this ladder. And sure enough, there's a little rowboat bobbing, it's tied to the end of the ladder, the bottom of the ladder and George has sat in it so I gingerly, you know, come down the stairs, only six or seven steps, and I lower myself into this boat and George gets the oars and before he does that, he presses a button somewhere in the wall and all these lights come on and we're we're on a lake under his house and it must have been, Steve, I would say, 100 yards in circumference. It was a, a man-made lake. And now here's a kicker. All around the, the circular wall were these aquariums, huge aquariums, all lit up with all sorts of fish floating in it. So, you know, we got a little spliff and we're, he, he starts rowing and he looks at me, and my jaw is just velcroed to my chest because I've never, before or after, never seen anything like this. And in the understatement of the century, he looks at me and says, nice, isn't it? <laughs> and that now, I'll, I'll follow that up with a little later in the evening. It comes to be 12 o'clock, the new year. And as we're singing that, you know, old acquaintance, be forgot, you know, that song that no one really knows the words to, just as we finished it, we're all in the ballroom, and one of George's aides, his PA, has come up and says, you know, George, there's someone at the door, you know, someone at the front door. And George was a very trusting guy. He said, well, let him in. Let him in. So this guy comes in, and he's, he's dressed in chauffeur livery, you know, he's got, you know, a hat and the buttons all down the front. And he's bearing this um, presentation case, like like a, a jewellery case, but quite big. It may be 12, 15 inches long, five or six inches across. And he gives it to George and, you know, oh, OK. So George opens it. And inside is a solid gold telegram. And he lifts it out and inscribed on it, it says... To George Harrison from Sir Joseph Lockwood, 
and everyone at EMI, their record label, to congratulate you on the sale of your two billionth record. And George seemed to be the master of understatement of that evening because he said, oh, this will make a nice paperweight. And leaves it on his desk. And, we're, you know, we're all like, what the fuck have we just witnessed? Your two billionth record? So forget forget um, Springsteen and Jackson and all the lovely people and the Garth Brookses of this world and Elvis. But when it comes to record sales, no one will ever touch the Beatles. And that was in 1984, by the way. Wow. So go figure. Okay, now Ringo, since we're talking about Beatles, you said you have a Ringo story? Well, Ringo's a lovely, I mean, I love him. He's, he's not only he's a huge influence on my drumming, but he's just a great guy. And um, this is probably the least spectacular of the stories, but it, it kind of shows what the guy is. We were on tour, the all-star band, and it was me, uh, Ringo, Jack Bruce, Peter Frampton, Mark Rivera, and Gary Brooker. We were on on this tour bus, and we were coming down from uh, um, from Portland. Now, let me get this right. From Seattle to Portland, so down the West Coast. And you have to go through the, the redwood forests, and these this is just magnificent, these huge redwoods. So we're coming through, and everyone's looking out the window going, oh, man, why? Ringo says, I want to stop the next place, and I want to get out, and we're going to walk through these redwood trees and get a sense of their majesty. So, all right, he's the boss. We could use a break. So we pull into a rest area, and, you know, we all get out and smelling the pines and marvelling at these incredible trees. You know, 10, 15 minutes, Ringo's wandered off somewhere. Um, and I went with him, and this is the weirdest thing. Set in the ground was a, a stake with a letter with a number seven on it. Maybe there was some event the week before, and maybe these are markers. But it really freaked Ringo out because that's his lucky number. And he says, oh, this is amazing. And I didn't want to tell him that maybe there was six and five and four around the corner. But anyway, he thought it was a mystical thing. So he sits down on this stump looking at this number seven and he's meditating, whatever. And then we get the call from the road manager to come on, the tour manager. We've got to go. Come on, you guys. The ringer says, oh, leave me for a few moments. Go on, fuck off, go. We're back in the bus. So we all get back in the bus. And the bus... You can't see from where Ringo's sitting. So there's Ringo Starr sitting on a stump, meditating, like Rodin's sculpture, right? Meditating. Suddenly around the corner, there's this woman, this hiker, and she's got a little backpack and a little stick with a V in it, and she's hiking, and she's on the trail, and there's no way she's going to miss Ringo Starr. And Ringo's sitting there, and she's walking, and she gets to within six feet of him, and she suddenly, like, freaks. She's probably a 60-year-old lady. She knows who Ringo Starr is. But there's no one else around, just Ringo on a stump. So he sort of flashes, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what he said to her, but she kind of, you know, jerks and stumbles off. 
kind of shaking her head and we're just tittering at but we because we can imagine the scene when she gets home she says around the dinner table i saw ringo start in the woods today and her hubby's you know probably said yeah all right probably an acid flashback from your youth darling all right whatever no i want to ask you real quick um when you said, you know, Led Zeppelin was the kings of debauchery and you guys did, you know, some things, what, what, you know, what were some of the instances of debauchery for bad company? Like what was considered, I mean, did you ever trash a hotel room? Did yes. You, no, I got to ask you, I've always wondered, my feeling is why? Like, I mean, cause then you, you don't you worry about like, where are you going to sleep? I mean, how does, how does a trashing a hotel room start? <laughs> Never trashed the room that we slept in, but there were there was always a party room that was uh, designated amongst the seven or eight in our part, you know, in our ensemble. We always designated we had one room because we're not that silly that we would encroach on other members of the band who want to go to bed early. So yeah, and then you know you have a few drinks, a few lines, a few beers. You want to show off to the girls that you got and. And suddenly you might break something. Oh, I've broken something. Oh, dear. Lad. Then the TV goes out the window. It's just, no, <laughs> stupid, criminal shit behavior. But because we had a lot of money, and, and it, it, the kicker was that we, on, in, in, one, uh, in one hotel, you know, when we were checking out, Peter Grant, uh, the manager, um, you know, there was this sort of junior man, uh, junior desk manager at the hotel, and he said, "Look, there was a room that sustained a lot of damage, and I've got to charge you fifteen hundred dollars for reparation." And you know, Peter pulled out this wad of hundreds. He said, "Here, you are, mate, yeah." And the guy said, "Listen, I've always wanted. What's it like? I've always wanted to do that." So. Peter pulls out another thousand. He says, pick a room. Come on. And sure enough, we all go down to this room that no one's in. And this guy goes nuts and does $1,000 worth of damage. So anyway, in answer to your question, Steve, look, it's something that we did in those days. It was stupid, I know. No one really got hurt. And uh, it was just venting. Maybe we had a bad gig. Uh, but at least we didn't drive Cadillacs into swimming pools. Like, like, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Simon. Uh, uh, what, what's coming up for you? What's What's in the future of Simon Kirk? What are you Are you going to do some more shows, solo shows, or like the the? Well, uh, the yeah, yeah. I hope. Look, I don't really know what's happened with with Bad Company. Quite honestly, um, COVID is still looming. You know, especially with people of my age. Well, me and Paul Rogers are in our seventies now, and I, it's we have to be really, really careful. I would love to do some more bad company shows, and I know Paul is going to do um, a show in. He's going to test the waters, so to speak, in uh, November. And if he likes, you know, if he if he performs well, and if he uh, feels up to it, then we'll do some stuff next year. That will be nearly... We're coming up on three years now that we've been off the road, and it's it's not good. I, I, um, I do solo shows. I do shows with G. Smith, who's a wonderful guitar player. And I'm also getting into um, movie, uh, movie, movie scoring, 
which is something I really want to do as my performing years start to die down, you know. Um, I would love to get into movie scoring. I've done a couple of couple of little movies. I'm still writing songs all the time. And uh, I've got a book, you know. Obviously, like all rock musicians of my age, we've all written books. I don't know if I'll publish it, but it makes great reading. Um, I'll probably release it when I'm dead and gone. I don't know. What made you decide to write the book? Because I always think when you write a book... It's so revealing, and I know people who've written books, you really get in touch with your inner self, but then yeah. they worry if, I know I know guys have written books that didn't do that well, and they go, oh, Christ, people people didn't really find me as entertaining as I thought. What made you decide to write the book? Right. Well, I'll tell you what. It, more than anything, I wanted some kind of order in my in my life and i wanted to go back because i have a very interesting luckily and i thank god i'm clean and sober now and I've, I've been through many morphs many different changes in my life but i just wanted to document how i started for nothing else than, than for my own gratification i was given an offer by um an English publishing house, and it was peanuts. I mean, it wasn't... It's not like I would do it for the money. And quite honestly, they wanted sex and br- drugs and the whole thing, and they wanted... They want things that sell, which is, you know, fair enough. They, they're they in the, the, the commercial business. They don't want this philosophical, oh, man, you know, life was one big yoga pose. No, they want... And I didn't want to upset my kids. I didn't want to upset my right. wife my wives so nah but it was great to write it all down and i've sent it to a couple of friends to read and they were like whoa this is great man you should so it was just a, a cathartic exercise you know well that's awesome i want to thank you for coming on how can people catch up with you and see what you're doing you have your website i have a website but i'm very i'm terrible I, i'm i'm elapsed i don't keep up with social media Instagram and all that stuff. I they can get in touch with me through David Spiro, who's my manager, and um, they can just go Google him. Anyone who wants to get in touch with me, he's the guy. And if you want to book me, you can do that through David as well. I go, I do solo shows. I do shows with this wonderful band called um, Empty Pockets, a great little band. And you know, I just love playing, and and I want to. I want to keep playing in some capacity or other. So, so people, go check out Simon. Google him. Go listen to some Bad Company today. This weekend, go listen to Bad Company. Chill out. It's always good to listen to. If you're my age, it's going to take you back to a time when you're listening to, from the Philly area, MMR or YSP. And uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. And don't forget, drink your water, take your vitamins, eat your vegetables, and I'll talk to you guys (laughs) next time.